Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. How do you know that the Bible really is from God? That's a pretty fundamental question, isn't it? It's a question we have to have an answer for. Many of you remember the days when some would ask a question, a moral question of some kind, and all you had to say was something like, well, the Bible says, and they would say, oh, okay, I'll go along with that. Folks, we're not living in those days any longer. And I know we live in the Bible Belt in a small set. We are not living in those days any longer. We have got to be able to prove to people that the Bible really is the Word of God. That is no longer assumed by people. That's no longer just within the fabric of our society, even in small-town Southern America. And even if some want to say, well, it's, it's a good book, there are a whole lot of people who don't live like it's the Word of God. So how do we really know that the Bible is the Word of God? Our one word for this week, if you're following along in those devotionals, is the word inspiration. The Bible certainly claims for itself to be God's Word. The Bible claims for itself to to contain phrases like, Thus says the Lord, or the Lord says. And the Bible claims inspiration. You probably were thinking, wait a minute, the word's inspiration. Why didn't we read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, since that's where that word is found? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is the only verse in Scripture in the New Testament that actually contains the word inspiration. And it's only found there in a handful of translations. It's not even found in every translation. Many of you memorized that verse from the old King James growing up. All Scripture is inspired of God. Well, that sounds wonderful. What in the world does it mean? Some other translations, the English Standard, some others go ahead and give us the definition by by by. uh, translating the word inspired there for us to understand. All Scripture is, the English Standard Version has, breathed out by God. You see, that's what the word inspired or inspiration actually means. The word comes from two root words, or two roots to the word, I should say. The first one is a root for God. And the second word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce means spirit or breath. And so the idea behind the word inspiration is when you pick up a copy of God's Word, what Paul said to Timothy is all Scripture is, if you please, the breath of God or the Spirit of God right there on the pages before you. That's a pretty strong claim, isn't it? From Genesis 1-1 all the way through the last verse of Revelation, all of it is given by the Spirit or the breath of God. That is a massive claim. Here's the question, can we prove it? I want to do two things tonight. 
First of all, we're going to spend the vast majority of our time, I want us to be able to leave here tonight proving that this book really is inspired. And in the last few minutes, I want us to go back to that text that Daniel read for us a few minutes ago from Second Peter and show why it matters. Folks, this matters in a major way. But I want us to think for a while tonight about some proofs of inspiration. And notice the way we're wording that. We are not saying we want to give some things tonight that go, well, I guess it's inspired. I guess this is the Word of God. We're also not giving some things tonight where you can go up to a friend and say, well, I think that it is, but, but you don't have to. Folks, I know that the Bible is the Word of God. I know that it is. And I want to show you tonight that it really is. And trust me, we could go on and on and on. But we have care groups, K through 6 devotional, and frankly, I'm hungry. And so we're going to do four things, very briefly each, to show that it really is the Word of God. First of all, you see that in the unity of the document as a whole. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In about 1500 B.C., John pens the last few books of the New Testament, the gospel that bears his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and ultimately the book of Revelation, probably in the mid-90s A.D. So around 16 centuries pass between when the first books are penned and when the final books are penned. And further, if you put it all together, there are about 40 human authors. And those human authors are about as diverse as possible in terms of education, in terms of background, in terms of career, in terms of their place of society, and on and on. You have kings like David. You have those who were servants of kings like Nehemiah. You have men of the field like Amos. You have people who worked for the government like Matthew. You have a doctor in Luke. You have a military conqueror in Joshua, and on and on and on it goes. And on top of that, you have people writing most likely on three different continents over all those centuries, Africa, Asia, and Europe. You have them using two major languages, Hebrew and Greek, as well as a dialect, Aramaic. And add to that, you have various styles of writing. Some wrote straightforward narrative history, some wrote poetry, some collected writings or proverbs, some listed laws and ordinances, some sections of the Bible are letters, while others are visions and prophecies. Now, why am I reminding you of all of that? It's because with all of those differences, over all of that time, by all of those writers, in all of those places, in each of those languages, there is not a single contradiction found anywhere in Scripture. That is true in two ways. It is first of all true that there's no contradiction in the vast narrative of Scripture. In other words, the big picture story of what the Bible is all about. From beginning to end, really ever since Genesis chapter 3, all the way through the end of the book of Revelation, the Bible really is telling one massive story, the redemption of mankind by God through the work and person of Jesus Christ. There is, no, there is nowhere in Scripture that deviates at all from that massive story. But even more amazingly than that, there is not a single contradiction in any of the details of Scripture, including some of the most minute details possible. If you were to take, let's just say, 20 historians, not even 40, just 20, all of them living right now, and put them in a major university library, with all of the books, all the internet connections, everything they wanted, and say, 
would you all please write a very short paper telling us the precipitating reason behind the Korean conflict of the 20th century? How many knockdown dragouts do you think there would be before they came up with that? And those are all people who live in one place at one time with all the same resources. And yet you have all of these authors with all of these backgrounds in all of these places with all of these different writing styles and never a single contradiction. Peter did not have to come back centuries later and correct David's mistakes. Amos doesn't have to come along near the end of the Old Testament period and say, let me tell you what Moses messed up. It's, it's not there. The unity of the Bible in the whole document proves its inspiration because only a dividing, guiding hand could have possibly led to all that over all those centuries. Secondly, we can prove the Bible is from God because of its accuracy in other areas. By other areas, I mean those areas outside of specific things concerning religion or spirituality. The Bible is not primarily, for example, a book about history or about geography or about science or about philosophy or any of these other areas. But each and every time the Bible writers mention anything that has to do with those areas, it has always been proven to be exactly right historically, geographically, scientifically, philosophically, and on and on it goes. Just by way of one example, the book of Acts, 28 chapters in length contains, if you really read through it carefully, an overwhelming number of references to people and places. In just that one book, in Acts, there are named some 32 countries or regions, 54 cities, 9 islands on the Mediterranean Sea, and 95 individual people, 62 of which are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. There are so many people and places named that in the late 1800s, a British man named Sir William Ramsey decided to travel to that part of the world with the express purpose of proving that Acts was false. The express purpose of proving that all of these places and people, there is no way that all of this was absolutely true. When his trip was over, every last one of them had been proven to be true. And Sir William Ramsey had to write, this really is accurate, geographically, historically, directionally, all of those things, 100%. Think about it this way. If you were going to try to tell a fictional story, would you include so many specific places, some of which are, are not even significant in their own time? Why would you pick a Bethlehem, for example? It's a nothing town. But the Bible continually names all of these places, all of these things, and it is always true. Number three, and my favorite, is the foreknowledge of Scripture. Here's where I ask you to bring a pen for tonight. When, I talk, when we talk about foreknowledge, what we are saying is there are certain things found in the Bible that there is absolutely no way that the writers or the speakers could have known in the time in which they wrote them. And all of these centuries later, we look back and think, well, everybody knows that, when they couldn't have. There are dozens, I'm going to give you just a handful, and you may want to underline these or mark them in the margin of your Bible because they will stand out the next time you read your Bible and you will be amazed at what is there that these people could have never known. One example is found in Job chapter 38 and verse 16. I know Job is a poetic book, but that's in the section where God is speaking. And in Job 38 and verse 16, it is God himself who says to Job, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? 
Folks, you don't have to go back in history very long to see where people believed that when you left a shoreline, the land underwater went smoothly down, flattened out almost like this floor here, and however many miles it was on the other side, it smoothly came back up to an island or another continent. And yet all the way back in Job 38 and verse 16, God specifically mentions the recesses of the deep, and you and I know they're there, don't we? In fact, there are trenches in the bottom of the ocean that are deeper down than Mount Everest is up. Job couldn't have had any earthly idea what God was talking about. And yet there it is. How about Genesis chapter 6 and verse 15? Oh, that's the account of the flood, isn't it? But in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 15, you remember that God doesn't just tell Noah to build an ark. He's very specific in how to build it. You, know, you make it with pitch inside and out, one window, one door, and all that stuff. But do you remember the dimensions of the ark? It's, why, why would the Bible tell us? Why in the world would the Bible tell us that the ark is supposed to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high? Well, in part, just the information. But some of you have a whole lot more knowledge about boats than I do, which means you actually have some. <laughs> And if you reduce those numbers down to the ratio, you find something very interesting. 30 by 5 by 3. Guess what ratio to this day is exactly the right ratio to build a vessel meant to carry cargo and not for speed? 30 by 5 by 3. You didn't have to build a vessel for speed. Where in the world was the ark going? It didn't have to go anywhere very fast. But it had some precious cargo, didn't it? And to this day, many shipbuilders still use 30 by 5 by 3 to build ships. How in the world could Noah have known that? He couldn't have. How about Genesis chapter 17? You turn forward a few chapters, a few pages in your Bible. To Genesis chapter 17 and verse 12. One of those weird places in Scripture. You go, why in the world is that there? In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 12, you have the account where Abraham is told to circumcise his son on the eighth day. That's a weird command. Sounds very arbitrary, doesn't it? Until you study human development. You see, on the eighth day of every normal male's life cycle, and only on the eighth day of every male's normal life cycle, literally only for his entire lifetime, vitamin K spikes to over 100%. Guess what vitamin K helps with? Blood clotting. You want to circumcise a baby boy, you do it on day eight. How in the world could Abraham have known that? He couldn't. In fact, it wasn't that long ago before we had many medicines that still when people circumcised baby boys because that was the healthiest and safest day to do so. And yet here it is all the way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 17. How about Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where you have one for sure and maybe two of these proofs of scientific foreknowledge. Solomon wrote there, I believe Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1, beginning in verse 6, The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. That may be a reference to the jet stream, it may not. But verse 7 surely is scientific foreknowledge. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, 
there they flow again. How could Solomon have known about the water cycle? And yet there it is. All this water leaving rivers and creeks, and yet the seas don't fill up and spill over their banks. How does that work? God put it in place. One more, and trust me, there are many, many, many others. And this is my favorite. Psalm 8 and verse 8. The end of that verse, Psalm 8 and verse 8, ends by speaking of whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Sound like anything we know about? Anything we might even use? It's currents. What's very interesting about Psalm 8 and verse 8 is this, and you may want to mark this in your Bible just in a special note. Currents were not actually discovered until the 1880s. They were discovered by a man named Matthew Maury. But here's what makes the story interesting. Matthew Maury discovered currents in the ocean because of Psalm 8 and verse 8. He read this psalm, saw this phrase that said that there are paths in the sea, and believed in Scripture enough to say, if it says it's there, I believe that they're there. And he went out scientifically and found them. We know about currents today because David wrote about them a thousand years before Christ ever came on the scene. How in the world did David know about that stuff? And folks, trust me, there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens more. Read through the book of Leviticus sometime, as boring as you may think it is with all the laws. But as you read some of those laws, ask yourself, how could Moses have known to do some of this stuff? When we didn't discover the sanitary or hygienic or scientific or biological reasons behind them until maybe a decade or two or a century or two ago, there's no way this is accident. Number four is fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy is not just a guess. There was a writer named Thomas Holm about a century ago who gave a very good definition of prophecy. He, he defined it this way. A prophecy is, quote, a miracle of knowledge, a declaration or representation of something future beyond the power of human knowledge to discern or to calculate. In fact, the Bible itself gives one definition of prophecy at the end of Isaiah verse, chapter 41 and verse 22 where God said to, the, to false prophets, declare to us the things to come. And you remember the Old Testament law included how to test out a prophet. If what they say comes true, they're from God. If, they, if it doesn't, you know they're false. Brother Wayne Jackson says that for us to consider a prophecy to be a true prophecy, three things must be in place. One, he says... There must be proper timing. In other words, it's not just guessing something's going to happen 20 minutes from now. It's guessing something that's a long way down the road with so many variables out there that could change all that. Number two, specific details. Not just some general statement. You know, uh, I think somebody tomorrow might eat breakfast. Folks, that's not a prophecy. That's, that's, That's not prophecy. But if I name someone that four centuries from now is going to sit in this restaurant and eat that meal, we got something to work with. And then number three is exact fulfillment, down to the last, minutest, tiniest detail. Does the Bible ever do that? Oh, it does, over and over again, concerning nations, concerning people groups, concerning individuals, and on and on it goes. Think about just a handful, and trust me, there are hundreds. How about King Josiah? King Josiah was spoken of in prophecy. In 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse 2, by name, here's what makes that interesting. Josiah would not be born for 300 more years. 
And yet by name he is mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse 2. So was King Cyrus of Persia. In Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, really the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 45, you've got this reference to someone named Cyrus 300 years before Cyrus is ever born. And to make that even more interesting, Cyrus would be king of Persia, and Persia barely existed at that point in time. And it for sure was nowhere near a world power. And yet by name, Isaiah says, one named Cyrus is coming. My Sunday morning Bible class, actually this morning, very quickly, looked at Daniel chapter 11. Folks, we don't have time to go through that chapter. As I mentioned to them this morning, in just the first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11, there are over 130 prophecies. And they are so specific that there are some people who claim that Daniel 11 was actually added later by a historian. Because there's no way someone before the time could have possibly been so accurate in verse after verse and phrase after phrase after phrase of what was going to come. And you also know how many prophecies there are concerning Jesus himself. Over 330 times in the Old Testament, there are prophecies concerning Jesus. He was to be born of a woman, Genesis 3.15. From the lineage of Abraham, Genesis 22.18. From the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. From the royal line of David, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12. He'll be born of one who had never known a man, a virgin, Isaiah 7 and verse 14. He'll be born in Bethlehem, and if that's not close enough, a specific Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Micah 5 and verse 2. In the days of the Roman Empire, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. But while Judah still held some power, Genesis 49 and verse 10. Folks, That's just a smattering of the prophecies, just dealing with his birth, and that's not all of those. Jesus' mannerisms, his teachings, his miracles, his crucifixion, his resurrection, the fact that he would be betrayed, and for how much, and far, far more are all prophesied in exacting detail all the way back to the time of Genesis chapter 3, through the time of David a thousand years before he came, and all of the prophets, Isaiah 700 years before, Micah about 650 years before, and on and on it goes. To give you some idea of just how mind-boggling that really is, there was a little booklet written in 1963 by a mathematician named Peter Stoner. Mr. Stoner said that if you took, are you ready for this number? Eight, eight of the prophecies in the Old Testament that dealt with Jesus the Christ, the odds of one man, those centuries later, fulfilling eight of them was one times ten to the 17th power. Some of you are going, I was told there'd be no math. Mr. Stoner in his book said, let me give you an illustration of how astronomical that number is. Think of how large the state of Texas is. This was his illustration. He said, take the state of Texas, the entire state, and cover it two feet deep with silver dollars. But not before having marked one of the silver dollars with an X on the back of it. Now, go around the entire state of Texas and stir that two foot deep pile of silver dollars. Then put a man, he said, on the border between Arkansas and Texas. Blindfold him. And tell him to find the coin. He said that's the mathematical odds of any one man fulfilling eight of the prophecies. There are 330 plus. You want to tell me this isn't the word of God? Folks, that's the word of God. 
we can prove this is not man's book. I don't believe in this book because it's got neat stories. There are some neat stories in it, but that's not why I believe in it. I don't believe in this book just because, well, it gives me some nice philosophical things to consider and provides me some wisdom for everyday living, although it does. I don't believe in this book because it just, it just makes me a better person, although it does. Folks, I believe in this book because it's the Word of God. And I don't have to listen to anybody tell me it's not. And trust me, we could go on and on and on. But in the last few minutes, I want us to ask why it matters. Why does this really, really matter? All of that comes back to our scripture reading from a little while ago, from 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, wait a minute. Who wrote that? Peter. Peter. And did you notice in in the verses that, that Daniel read for us, that Peter makes reference to something very, very specific that had happened in his life earlier when Jesus was still on the earth. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Peter reminds his readers that he was there, we usually refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration, when, when the glory of God shone through Christ. Luke tells us that, that Christ shone so much that a launderer couldn't even make anything whiter than that. And, and Peter says, we were there when we heard the voice of God. And he only references part of the speech, doesn't he? Because Peter quotes here, this is my beloved son in whom I will please. But you remember there was more said there, don't you? Hear him. That's convicting. That's convincing. That's pretty amazing. But notice what Peter said in verse 19. And we have something, the English Standard Version that I have, we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. We'll get to the second part of that verse in a minute. Just, just a second. Did Peter say what I think he said? Is, Peter was there when Jesus was transfigured on that mountain. Matthew 17 as well as the parallel accounts. He, he actually heard that voice from heaven in that awe-inspiring declaration. And yet now, later in his life, Peter says that, that the prophetic word, that inspiration, is more sure than that? Is that what Peter is actually saying? seems to me that what Peter is saying here is something along the lines of that the Mount of Transfiguration only settled even more strongly the argument that all of these prophecies and all of this inspiration really is true and right and accurate. And because of that, we have got to pay attention to them, to the Word of God. And so with that in mind, Peter gives one of the more important statements we have concerning the inspiration of Scripture, found down in verses 20 and 21, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. Some old translations have borne aloft by the Holy Spirit. What's Peter saying? If I can put it in my terminology, Peter's basically saying nobody could have made this stuff up. That's, that's a very loose paraphrase, but that's basically what he's saying. No prophecy came from someone's own private interpretation. They didn't make it up. 
Instead, God's Spirit carried them along to write and to prophesy and to bring this to fruition. So what difference then does inspiration make? Folks, it makes all the difference because we are not reading the words of men. We are reading exactly, word for word, what God wanted penned for all people in all times and all cultures. So go back up to verse 19 because it's there where you see the difference. Where Peter gives the admonition that you will do well to pay attention to Scripture as to a lamp shining in a dark place. How often do we hear the world we live in called a dark world? An evil world. Christians are sometimes fearful of what's going on. We may even wonder... Could things possibly get worse? How do we deal with those fears? How do we deal with that darkness? How do we combat that? We do well to pay attention to the Scriptures because it is the light in the dark world. Does that not resonate all the way back to what is said in Psalm 119, verse 105? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Folks, we don't back down one iota from reading and studying and living and defending the Word of God because in the midst of this dark world, it's the shining light. I love the words to a song we sometimes sing, not often, but we sing it every so often. Ancient words, ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Yes, the Bible is old. By any standard we have, the Bible is an old book. Yes, the Bible was written in a different time, in different times over the course of those centuries, in different cultures over those centuries. Yes, it was written in a couple of languages that most of us can you may be able to pronounce one or two words from and all of that. But each and every column of each and every page contains truths that are as needed and as modern as possible. Because only, only the Almighty and all-knowing God could know humanity so well and so intimately and so perfectly that He could provide for the needs of every person who will ever live in any culture and somehow do it in one book. And that's exactly what He did. And how we got the Bible... The miracle of inspiration needs to be loved and needs to be appreciated. And each and every time you and I are honored and privileged to open up this book, whether we're reading a difficult passage from an Old Testament prophet or a very familiar passage from the lips of Jesus, we need to stand in awe that God was able to bring it to us. Because every word was breathed out by God. All Scripture is inspired, breathed out, God-spirited. And it's profitable for doctrine, teaching, for reproof, correction, for training, discipline, in righteousness, so that the man, the person of God, may be complete, literally perfect, equipped thoroughly for every good work. That's why when someone says, what must I do to be saved? I don't give them my opinion. 
I don't give them some Church of Christ tradition answer. I tell them what the book says. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness, the remission, the liberation from your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why when there's a Christian who says, I've been baptized, but I've got sin in my life. What, What do I do? I remind them not of some opinion, but of the words of this book. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. They are ancient words, ever true. And my prayer is that for every one of us, that daily they will change us through and through. Tonight, do you need to respond, not to me, not to some group, but to what the book says? Do you need to become a Christian? Do you need to return in faithfulness? Do you need to come ask for prayers of encouragement to do better? Whatever your need is tonight, we invite you to come while we stand and sing to encourage you.